This episode is sponsored by the upcoming South African action movie Indemnity. And if we're talking about living through something, then this movie has got it all. When a traumatised ex-firefighter in Cape Town wakes up next to his wife's murdered body with no recollection of what transpired, he finds himself labelled as the prime suspect. He goes on the run and is soon hunted by a notorious police chief and an unknown third party. He must now fight for his life and find out who killed his wife before a conspiracy changes the course of a nation forever. Starring a proudly South African cast with Jared Cadult in the lead, who, by the way, did all of his own stunts, every single one. Jared suspended out of a 21-story window, actually Jared. Starring alongside Jared are Gail Mabalani and Nicole Fortain in South Africa's biggest action film in terms of action sequences to date. Indemnity releases in cinemas on the 13th of May, and if you head over to our sister podcast, True Crime South Africa's socials, we've got two double tickets to give away to two lucky listeners. The giveaway will run on TCSA's social media sites, and the winner will be announced on those same socials next Friday. I am super excited about how the South African film and television industry is growing. We're producing amazing content in this country, and I'm grateful to be able to help promote this. Thank you so much to Indemnity for supporting I Lived Through This. I came from the mud, desert on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon. Dating him would bring on disaster, basically. Okay, this is what it is. You have to accept it. You're dead. I thought, I've got to stop him. Try to catch me howling at the The stories told on I Lived Through This are told by those who experienced them in good faith. The views expressed by the survivors in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of me, the podcast, or any sponsor of the show. Some of the stories on this podcast may include triggers for some listeners, including descriptions of injuries, sexual violence, abuse, and other triggering topics. Please consider this when listening to this podcast. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht. You may know me from my other podcasts, True Crime South Africa or the Devil's Dorp Companion Podcast. Throughout my podcast journey, in talking to survivors and the family members of victims, I discovered the life-changing power of stories. Stories told from the heart, as a narrative of a human being's lived experience, are enormously impactful. 
for both the storyteller and the listener. In my new podcast series, I Lived Through This, I bring you the stories of ordinary people who faced seemingly insurmountable odds and survived to tell you the tale in their own words. From getting trapped in a destructive cult, surviving an abusive relationship, living through a natural disaster, life-changing disease, and even a fight for survival with a wild animal. Join me for these powerful tales of facing the unimaginable and fighting to be able to say, I lived through this. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. Romantic relationships can be a minefield. When they go well and you meet someone who resonates with your values, they can add to your life and make you happier than ever. But when they go wrong, or the person you're involved with is not honest with you, relationships can cause trauma and heartache. For Cindy Pavasic, a relationship she thought was an exciting adventure turned into a fight for her life when she met her deadly seducer. This is Cindy's story. I moved to KZN in, in uh, about 1996. And having lived there for a couple of years, I ended up divorced and getting to know new people. And one of my friends at some point after I'd shared premises with them for a couple of years, introduced me or started pushing me to start dating this person. And I am going to use this person's name purely because it has reached a point in the legal system that I am allowed to use his name. They pushed me to go out with Wayne. I was not keen to do so because he had dated somebody else and I wasn't into getting that particular person's sloppy seconds. And I, I know it sounds evil, but yeah. Uh, that was my feeling at the time. But they were so persistent that I eventually decided, okay, well, you know what, to get them to shut up, let me just go on a date with him and, you know, maybe they'll leave me alone after that. Now, this person, Wayne, had such a open, happy-go-lucky sort of lifestyle that it was, it, it, drew, it drew me in, me and many others, I might add. But at the end of the day, I did have fun. He was younger than me. So it was quite flattering in a sense to have the attentions of somebody so much younger than myself. And little did I know that dating him would bring on disaster, basically. We dated for a while and eventually obviously had sexual intercourse. And people automatically think, oh, why didn't the silly girl wear a condom. Well, this silly girl did wear a condom, but unfortunately there was a condom mishap. And stupidly, I, I'll say that uh, once that had happened, I thought, oh, well, whatever damage is done, is done. Not thinking of HIV, thinking, well, well, you know what, I can't fall pregnant at that age kind of thing. Not thinking of STIs and, and HIV at all. It, you know, we come from an era where there was trust. So I didn't think anything of it. To my detriment, obviously. A few things here. Firstly, there has never and will never be any victim blaming from me or my podcasts. 
as you may have already started to gather, Cindy's relationship with Wayne is about to deliver to her door a fight for her life she could never have imagined. Because she didn't imagine that her boyfriend, her partner, the man she cared for at the time, was harboring a deadly secret. In 2004, when Cindy was dating Wayne, we hadn't made the advances in understanding and advocating for protection against HIV and other STIs that we have today. Cindy's biggest concern was pregnancy, and that for her was not a concern due to her age. She would soon learn, though, that all was not what it seemed, with the risk profile, and also with Wayne. This happened in 2004, and unbeknownst to me, he was HIV positive. I only found that out in 2012 that he, in fact, knew his HIV status. He had, at that point in 2004, been HIV positive for two years already. So this is the devastating truth. Wayne knows he's HIV positive. He's known for two years by the time he meets Cindy. But she doesn't know this. And although she will soon find out that he's sick, it will take many years before she finds out the true horror of what Wayne really did. When Wayne starts to get sick, Cindy takes care of him, like any other good partner. He started to get ill. He was having stomach cramps. I took him to hospital first time, second time. The third time I took him to hospital, they actually took him into to have surgery because his, his bowel had perforated in three different places. And while he was in hospital, he was told by the nursing staff that it might be a good idea to have an HIV test because he actually had TB of the bowel. And he supposedly had his first HIV test there and needless to say, it came back positive. So I had to go and have my self-tested. And those days, we're talking 2004 here, it was still a test that you had to wait for for seven days because I had the ELISA test. I didn't have this, the rapid test. It gave me an opportunity to come to terms with the fact that it probably is going to come back positive. I had no doubt in my mind that it was going to come back positive. And it duly did. And unfortunately, prior to my test coming back, I, when I walked into the hospital ward where Wayne was in, the sister on duty had the audacity in front of everybody in the general ward to ask me out loud as I walked in the main door, did he tell you that his test came back positive? So the whole ward heard this and obviously I lost my cool a little bit and I did take action against her up to the point where I tried to get her struck off the nursing list because that was totally unprofessional. It got to a point where they did actually transfer this particular sister to another hospital. They did not strike her off the nursing role, unfortunately. Cindy will probably experience the very best and the very worst of the medical profession in her journey. And this nurse certainly ranks on the worst end. Not only is that personal medical information 
that should never be announced publicly like that. But at that time, the stigma against people living with HIV was still enormous in this country. That woman's actions could have had such huge ramifications for Cindy. So Cindy's tested positive, and she's under the impression that Wayne has also just discovered he's positive. It's a horrible situation, but she doesn't really feel like she can blame anyone, because these things sometimes just happen, right? Right? And uh, from there, after I received my results, it was kind of um, an anticlimax, I can say. Because of my results, I did take that anger out on the sister, and that's why I went balls to the wall in following up on her unprofessionalism. Whereas had I known better at the time that Wayne had knowingly infected me, I would have obviously taken action against him earlier. I remember when I got my test back, it was, I was numb. I was actually numb. I recall going shopping and just going home and unpacking like normal and sitting down on the couch when I got home and thinking, well, this is it. This is the end. You, there's nothing you can do about it and you have to accept it. Fortunately, in a sense, I was a lot older than some people that get infected now. So I, was, I had my children. I'd had two marriages behind me and it was like, okay, this is what it is. You have to accept it. You're dead, basically. Not everybody has that sort of attitude about life. I live a very realistic life. And, and to me, that was it. I wasn't, had no intention of telling anybody what my HIV status was. Um, not family, not friends. I, I was never offered pre-counseling. I was also never offered post-counseling. So there was nobody that actually knew except the people that had tested my blood and my, my GP. Now, we'll get into the reality of what life with HIV can be like with today's medical advances later in the episode. But I think it's important that we're taking this journey chronologically with Cindy and seeing her mindset at the time, because this is very likely the mindset that most people will have if they're diagnosed with HIV, if they've never had any exposure to education about it. And this is why pre-test and post-test counselling are vital, life-saving even. Because then Cindy would have had a better grasp on how she could actually avoid getting sick. But that was not to be, at least not in the beginning of her journey. I also find it so sad that she felt she initially had to go through this alone, and not even tell those that loved her the most. And I think, because of the stigma around HIV, a lot of people still do this. And soon, the virus began to wreak havoc on Cindy's body. However, within uh, roughly five, six months of my diagnosis, I started to get sick. I started to suffer from blackouts. I was passing out anything from a couple of seconds to an entire days, I was having these blackouts. I couldn't move. I couldn't get myself up. I was losing weight. When I eventually went to the doctor, he suggested that I go into medication. And those years, nobody 
actually told you why you should go on the medication. And there was so much negativity around the medication, the ARVs, that I, I said, you know, I'm not ready to go onto the medication, even though I was ill because of all the side effects that were allegedly surrounding these this medication. By the time I was ready for the medication, which firstly wasn't my choice, I'd already acquired AIDS. I was diagnosed with AIDS. In other words, um, I had more than one acquired disease associated with my HIV status because my immune system was so depleted. And secondly, my viral load was sitting at 2.8 million and my CD4 count was 203, which is bad. Let's pause here and understand the terms that Cindy is using. The HIV virus, what we simply call HIV, attacks the body by targeting what are called CD4 cells. These cells play a major role in keeping the immune system running effectively. CD4 cells are kind of like the CEOs of the immune system. They tell all the other cells in the immune system what they should be doing and when they should be doing it. So when these CD4 cells are under attack and being killed off by the HIV virus, they can't tell the other cells what to do. And as a result, your immune system can't fight off even the simplest infection. Our immune systems are phenomenal things. And most of the time, you have no idea what they're fighting off on a daily basis because they do it without your knowledge. But for a person with untreated HIV, the importance of the immune system becomes abundantly clear because they start to get sick with almost everything they're exposed to. And this is one of the ways, as Cindy mentioned, doctors measure whether you've progressed from HIV to full-blown AIDS. AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, and it's the syndrome that develops as a result of your immune system being lowered by the HIV virus. A syndrome is not like a virus. The definition of a syndrome is a group of symptoms that appear together. So AIDS is not like a separate disease to HIV. It's a syndrome which results from untreated HIV. Now, forgive me if you know all of this, but I know for a fact that there are many people listening who don't realize this, and I think it's vital for people to understand. The group of symptoms that the AID syndrome includes is a bunch of infections attacking you at once, combined with certain measurements of those cells Cindy mentioned. Two main measurements will contribute to a diagnosis of AIDS, your CD4 count and your viral load. In a person who does not have HIV, the CD4 count should be between 800 and 1,200. That's 1,200 little manager cells floating around your body managing the immune system department. When that CD4 count drops below 200, this will be considered a factor in the diagnosis of AIDS. Cindy's CD4 count was 203. The other measurement used is viral load. 
This is the measurement of how many copies of the virus are in your bloodstream per milliliter of blood. Once a virus enters your bloodstream, it starts to replicate, basically cloning itself with the hope of overwhelming the host. Uh, yeah, that's you. This is normal behavior for any virus. HI, COVID-19, influenza, whatever it may be. Often, your immune system will be able to fight the virus faster than it can replicate. But with the HI virus, that is often not possible. So when your viral load is measured, it tells you how at risk you are of your body being totally overwhelmed by the virus. For a person who's recently been exposed, their viral load can be around 1 million. Cindy's was at 2.8 million. So for every milliliter of blood in her body, she had 2.8 million copies of the HI virus, just floating around, wreaking complete havoc. She was a very ill woman. Okay, biology lesson over, back to Cindy's story. I had, within a four-year period between 2004 and 2008, I was obviously diagnosed with HIV. I was also diagnosed with AIDS, which included pneumonia. I had pneumonia in hospital. I was diagnosed with TB meningitis. I had shingles four times within a, a year. I also had two strokes, and in 2008, I was diagnosed with cancer, namely angioimmunoblastic lymphadenopathy, which is a rare form of cancer associated with HIV. So um, there you go, pretty much the diseases that I had to deal with. But by the time I got to my oncologist in 2008, that is the first time I went onto medication because I had to get my... CD4 count up. He put me onto ARVs immediately and did a whole battery of tests. And I had to up my iron. I had to do all sorts of things before I could actually go onto chemo. Yeah, it was quite a process. And I was initially told that with my viral load being so high, and the oncologist said to me, Well, you know what? After each session of chemo, you will drop one point in your in your viral load i'm like okay by the time i'd had my second chemo i was sitting at 111 that was my viral load count even the oncologist had no idea how i got to that we have no idea what i did or what he did but my viral load dropped massively he said, oh, well, let's give you the third session because we just need to give you three and just check where this is going. We need to get, get to under 40, your viral load. So we did that. And he kind of said, oh, well, we might as well give this one to you, seeing as you are here. Then the other one was, okay, we might as well give you this fifth one because we can get rid of all the ugly nooglies. And then with the sixth one, he said, okay, well, let's just give you this one because it is the last one. So that's kind of how mine worked. And I was very fortunate in a sense that I was never ill, as in vomiting from the chemotherapy. I was given extremely strong pills to prevent nausea. I never took one of those tablets. 
I have no idea why I sailed through my chemo. I was never tired. It was a standing joke when I got in there with the sisters. It was like, okay, so what are you going to do today? Because I said, okay, who wants to have their house painted? I had energy from where I do not know. <laughs> I think it is, I think it is, I joke with people that um, I was probably too stupid to know that I was supposed to be sick. But at the end of the day, I think it was my mindset. Well, you know what? This is either going to work or it's not. Let's see what we can do with it and take it from there. Chemotherapy is used to wipe out cancer cells. The offshoot of that is that it doesn't just target cancer cells. It targets many other good cells too, and actually makes you more ill before it makes you better. For someone like Cindy living with HIV, the risk of having chemo was extremely high. It was like playing biological Russian roulette. But by some stroke of luck, her chemotherapy ended up seriously reducing her HI viral count. Like, hugely. To put it in perspective, a person with a viral load less than 200 is considered to be in a state called viral suppression, which means they have the virus under control, but they can still pass it on to others. At a viral load of just 100, Cindy having cancer and getting chemotherapy actually resulted in her getting to the stage where the virus would be close to undetectable in her blood. Of course, it wasn't just the chemo doing this. Importantly, she had started taking antiretrovirals, and we'll discuss the importance of this medication a bit later. But Cindy's path to that point had not been easy. Before the chemotherapy and what have you, and before the cancer got diagnosed, I did also have incidences that, because in 2005, in, in December slash January, I had nodules at the back of my neck going up my back into my neck, which I'm sure is what, is, what caused the strokes. And I was in a coma for two weeks in 2005 and same happened to me again in 2006. I was in a coma for two weeks each time in hospital. So prior to getting to the uh, chemotherapy, I had to go through that as well. So in case you're wondering, when Cindy is going through all of this, most of her family still don't know she has HIV. She would discover that her mother had actually found out when she was in hospital in 2005. Apparently in the hospital in 2005, when my mother came to the hospital, I wasn't even barely aware that she was there. The doctor asked, I was in a coma at this point, the doctor asked the sister when he walked in if she is on ARVs in front of my mother and my brother. And my mother never said anything to me until I think maybe, I think it was 2000, eventually 2006. My, my mother knows the dates. I won't even argue with her because I was my, my head was in a space that I didn't know whether I was Arthur or Martha. And I was taking her back after one of her visits. I was in such a state, and that was the second time in 2006 when I was in Eddington Hospital that I was hallucinating initially horribly, accusing the poor guy over the ward from me. He was my father in my eyes. 
was having an affair with some who some other woman was visiting my father. And I'm asking my mother, wow, why didn't you just stay at my place? She wasn't there initially. She came after the fact. Um, she wasn't at the hospital when I was asking these questions. I said, well, why didn't you just stay at my place? No, she's in PE. I said, well, why didn't you stay at my place? She wasn't even there. So, you know, I, I kind of had that hectic hallucinations from the stroke and what have you. However, Apparently, I scared so many of the patients that they took me upstairs into another ward and I had a, a visitation, let's put it that way. And anyone who knows me knows that I don't go for fairy fluffy stuff. And I had a visitation from the Archangel Gabriel. And it definitely wasn't a hallucination and definitely wasn't a dream because to this day, and that happened in 2006, and I can remember exactly what happened in that room that day. He was holding up a flicati carpet, nohal, and slowly dropping it down in front of him. If you can imagine somebody holding up a flicati carpet and their fingers are hanging over the tips of the carpet. And he was slowly, slowly dropping it down. And I said, why are you doing that? Are you not wanting to scare me? And he turned around and said, yes, I'm trying not to scare you. And then he dropped the carpet and he turned sideways and started making, you know, like a, a a muscle man making muscles and what have you. And he was completely dressed in black with lights, like fairy lights, glittery fairy lights all over his like cat suit. And the next minute he was against the curtain as a, as a shadow. And then I, he came to sit on the bed next to me and I actually felt the bed go down. His face turned into Ron Perlman, Beauty and the Beast. And from there, I said to him, oh, are you seeing me through the night? And he said, yes, that is why I'm here. I recall dozing off and then hearing like a lawnmower snoring in the chair on the other side of my bed. And there he was with, with like an E.T. blanket over his head. And when I woke up in the morning, that blanket was exactly in that position still. And he was obviously gone. After that, I was... I came back to normal. So, yes, it's something that also carried me through, that I knew somebody was watching over me. All of this happens before Cindy is diagnosed with cancer and her viral load goes way down. And if you're wondering about Wayne, at this point in the story, 2006-ish, he's actually still on the scene. He was abusing my home as in living in my space, live, using my vehicle, what have you. And in that time prior to my hospitalization, he was also, he lost everything. He used up all his medical aid. So he had to, he was sort of booted out of hospital and I had to take all the drips and medication and everything with me. Had I known, I probably wouldn't have done that. But anyway, um, that's my evil side coming out. So yeah, I had to fit in his drips and what have you and do all the dirty work for him. So, and a number of times that the doctor actually had to come and visit at the house because his drip had dislodged. And of course I did this all on my own because for six years I did not disclose my status. I tell people nowadays, I was probably almost relieved when I was diagnosed with a cancer because I could hide the fact that I was HIV positive. I find that statement's heartbreaking that we as a society are so bloody judgmental, that we can make someone with a virus feel like they need to have cancer 
to be able to ask for support in their illness. What the hell is wrong with us as human beings? Why? Because unprotected sex is one of the ways you can contract HIV. Is that really how much we value human beings' lives? I know this is changing, and I know it's much easier for people to disclose their status now, at least to their loved ones. But I can't even imagine how lonely and isolated Cindy must have felt. And Wayne? Wayne, that's mother you-know-what? Cindy still doesn't know it, but he's done this to her knowingly. And he still has the cheek to live off her and make her look after him when he's sick. Eventually Wayne gets better, though, and when he does, he starts to show his true colours. After I doctored him and nursed him through the, the whole process, probably about three months after he'd got well again, he started to drink like a hooligan. And I just ended up booting him out. And that was roughly in 2000, probably 2006. So there are a few themes in Cindy's story that bear exploration. Of course, from an education and destigmatization perspective, HIV is an important one. And we'll explore her journey with that aspect of her story more a bit later. But while we're on the subject of Wayne, I want to delve into another theme in the story that is vital to speak to. Wayne knowingly infected Cindy with HIV. Had she not approached her treatment the way she did, she may have died. He may have given her a death sentence. I couldn't help but wonder, what type of cold, calculated personality shows such utter disregard for the safety of other people? For you to be able to do that, you need to have very little conscience. So I asked Cindy what their relationship was like. What does a relationship look like with a person who is willing to kill you, albeit slowly? You know, you know, when you're first in a relationship, you put your best foot forward, which which he did. And I mean, it was it was fun. It was he did things. It was it was it was okay. It was good. And then his two self started to come out. He'd disappear here, disappear there. Take my my vehicle without consent. Leave me behind with my vehicle because he was not allowed. I banned him from using my vehicle. Um, things like that, and it just it just started to show his irresponsibility. And I'm like, mm, there's some there's some mental issues here, which have led to his breakdown of being totally irresponsible and pathological. Definitely abusive. There was definitely emotional abuse. There was no physical abuse at all. Definitely um, emotional abuse. He, he showed caring, but to get what he wanted. You know, he, he was such a manipulator in a sense, but such a such a subtle form of manipulation that you didn't even realize it. But in hindsight, I can pick it out now. I mean, I'm so wary of, of anybody, not just it. relationships, have no intention of getting into a relationship again. I think a lot of these patterns that Cindy describes are quite common in abusive relationships. In the beginning, he love-bombed her. 
She said it herself. She felt special, it felt good to have the attention of this man. Then the cracks started to very slowly show. Because no one, no matter how good they are presenting the facade, can keep it up forever. Although Cindy says that there was no physical abuse, in my mind at least, the act of him knowingly infecting her with HIV was a form of physical abuse. He assaulted her body with an illness he knew he had, and that he knew very well could kill Cindy. The pattern of emotional abuse is just as classic of an abusive situation. Wayne moved on quite quickly after Cindy asked him to leave and broke up with him, and we'll hear more about what happened then, later. As Cindy battled her cancer and won, she began to slowly gain confidence and told one or two people about her status, only those closest to her at first. She started to realize that she wanted to advocate for others living with HIV, but she couldn't do that without disclosing her status to essentially everyone. Eleven, I actually went public. One of my friends and... Um, well, two of my friends sort of got me going. One started to say, you have to actually talk to people about this. You have to, you have to, you have to. And the other one said, okay, I'll put up your website for you. And between Charlotte and Sean, they kind of pushed me into disclosing my status publicly. Although I, just before that, I was asked by a nonprofit organization where I was volunteering, doing counseling and so on, not necessarily on HIV and AIDS, but um, they asked me if I would speak in front of the group of women that they were having an, their annual event for. And I'm like, oh, my soul. This I had to do in front of 250 businesswomen. They were all the banking industry because they were all, um, this nonprofit organization was looking for donations and what have you and, and support throughout the year, which they generated this through the event. And I'm like, Oh, my soul. It was only six or seven minutes, but I'm telling you, I was terrified. Not so much only of the speaking, but also of the actual, what is the reaction going to be? But I can honestly say that reaction was fantastic. And when I eventually, that was in 2010 and the end of 2010 and 2011, when I, when I did go public, the response and the, and the support was unbelievable. But the trauma that my body went through was massive. Between her 2004 diagnosis and 2012, Cindy was dealing with many health issues, coming to terms with the fact that she was living with her virus and had to find a way to live the best life possible in that situation. She still believed that her contracting HIV was simply one of those things and that Wayne had found out about his diagnosis when she had. But around 2012, that all changed, when Cindy was contacted by one of Wayne's ex-girlfriends. One of his exes, who is not HIV positive, let that just be on record, had a friend who she contacted to contact me. So it came via a third party, a third third party to tell me that Wayne had in actual fact 
known his status two years prior to infecting me. That is the first time I found out that he, in fact, knew his HIV status. Because in the beginning, I was, oh, shame, let's do this together. You know, don't worry, I'm there for you kind of thing. So my anger barometer shot through the roof at this point. I was okay with it because I'd already accepted mine and what have you. But I thought, you know what? There are people out there that he is still going to be able to infect. And that is what got my goat. And that is when I found that out. Okay, they went, we went through a whole lot of rigmarole going through chatting to the people and finding out just what information she had. And she, in fact, had the documents of his HIV test because she had been instrumental in his testing. And she was willing to give this up through her lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. So I, from there, I thought, I've got to stop him. I had to stop him. With solid proof that Wayne had intentionally infected her with HIV, Cindy decides that although she can do nothing about her own diagnosis, she has to stop this man from infecting others. She starts to investigate and makes contact with as many women as she can find who've been in relationships with him. Then she decides to go to the media. In 2012, I was interviewed by Carte Blanche. But just prior to that, I'd been interviewed by a newspaper in KZN. And this led to Carte Blanche requesting an interview and so on. And it turned out that there were more than just me that were allegedly well, I was infected by him, but there were others that were allegedly infected by him. We counted eight people, but three of those, uh, two others were willing to be a part of the carte blanche expose. One of them had her face also. She was open about that. The other lady hid her face and they changed her voice. The fact that it went public brought in a lot of other people questioning with who this person was. At that point, there was nothing I could do about disclosing his name at all because he could have sued me for disclosing his HIV status. In this carte blanche episode, Wayne is given rights of reply. By phone, he is heard telling the journalist that he has no idea what these women are talking about because he was permanently drunk when he was with them. Essentially, he seems to claim that he was so intoxicated he had no idea he was having unprotected sex. From Cindy's recounting of their initial sexual encounter and when Wayne actually started drinking heavily in their relationship, we know that this is not true. It is also absolutely no excuse. One of the women in the episode says she'd asked Wayne to wear a condom and he'd initially agreed, but he'd removed it during sex without her knowledge. Also during this episode, the possibility of legal action against Wayne is discussed. Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, who was at the time brigadier of SAP's IPU, also weighed in in this episode. He indicated that this could certainly be a case of attempted murder. He compares it to someone walking around with a syringe of the Ebola virus and purposefully injecting people. What Wayne did was really no different. Cindy really wanted to be able to legally say Wayne's name in the public space, 
to help protect future victims. And so, she started to look into how she could legally achieve this. So I went to see a pro bono uh, attorney, because obviously I, at that point I couldn't afford to go through this whole rigmarole and I had no clue where to start and what to do. So somebody actually introduced me to this person. They suggested I go to a pro bono attorney if I wanted to do something about it. And I ended up going through, it was either five attorneys, four advocates or the other way around. But that is how many people were involved in getting this matter out into the open space. Everybody says, oh, was it for revenge? Absolutely not. It was there to stop him in his tracks, to, to put out there that, you know what, you can't actually go around knowing your status and knowingly infecting other people. That is attempted murder. The sad thing is, though, that I couldn't even find my documentation because the people that had taken my blood had mislaid my documentation as well. So we had to go the civil route rather than the criminal route which we duly did. And because of that, to get it to the high court, we had to put a value on it. And I said, well, do what you have to do. Um, I mean, this took months, years that this carried on up until probably 2014. The end result was that it got lodged in court that I think the claim was, was 2.1 million that they claimed against him, which if it had gone through the entire process, he would never, ever get credit in his life again. And unfortunately, once it got to court, the attorneys and the advocates seemed to just fall flat. It seemed as though that once they got there, they didn't know what to do with it. And the one attorney actually said to me, oh, we thought you only wanted to expose his, his name. I said, hell no. That wasn't, the, that wasn't what it was. I wanted it to get out there. I wanted it to, to, to get traction in the media so that people would be aware of somebody knowingly infecting somebody is actually a crime. Um, sadly, that stopped in its tracks. But when I came to Cape Town, as I came to Cape Town in 2014, Heskunert got wind of this court case. And they took the whole thing and did an entire two-page expose on it. So in the end, I kind of got a, a result, not what I wanted to get, but it did get his name out in the media, get him exposed and stop him in his tracks. So that was quite a lengthy and exhausting process that I went through, but it was well worth it in the end, even though the outcome wasn't quite what I had in mind. When the new Sexual Offences Act was promulgated in 2007, it's included a clause that criminalised the intentional passing on of the HIV virus to partners without disclosure. Unfortunately, by the time the Act was passed, the clause had been removed. Now, it was still entirely possible for Wayne to be charged with attempted murder, but the case would have to be proven in court. And the fact that there was no case precedent in South Africa would have been a huge problem. Ideally, what needs to happen is that cases like this need to be successfully prosecuted in a court of criminal law in South Africa in order for case law to be established so that future victims can use that to take these attempted murderers to court. For Cindy, monetary gain nor revenge were the motives. As she says, she wanted both Wayne's name and the fact 
that people are out there intentionally infecting others with HIV to be made public. And it is through this civil case and the follow-up interviews Cindy did that we are able to use Wayne's name today. Not everyone was in Cindy's corner during this time. Many AIDS organisations were concerned that she was attempting to criminalise HIV. And this was, of course, not the point. What she did and does want to criminalise is the lack of responsibility that Wayne displayed as a person living with a transmissible and life-threatening virus. When we first initiated sexual contact, he didn't even indicate that we should use uh, protection. I was the one that said, hey, uh uh-uh, no thank you protection. So it wasn't even part and parcel of his of his makeup at the po- at that point anyway. Well obviously not if he if he knowingly infected other people after me. And the fact that he knowingly infected somebody who actually gave birth to a child. I'm not using his surname here purposely because I do not want that child uh, it'll be easy to find anyway. Fortunately the child isn't infected. So you know it could have been that child could have been infected. And that to me is disgusting that you didn't take the proper precautions and you put somebody else and potentially their child at risk. That is totally irresponsible and needs to be addressed. And that is the other side of this already pretty horrifying coin. Because although Cindy knew that she couldn't fall pregnant, Every time Wayne had unprotected sex with a woman, he was not just knowingly putting them at risk of contracting HIV, he was also risking them falling pregnant with a baby who could also be born with HIV. A baby. It just sends absolute shivers down my spine. I asked Cindy if she ever identified anyone that he'd infected before her. And she says not specifically, but if you remember back to the beginning of this episode, she'd actually met Wayne through friends they had in common. And after everything came out, she started to notice that people she knew had had contact with him before her were showing signs of not being well. Let me put it this way. I knew who he dated previously. And these particular people went off the social scene all of a sudden. And then I bumped into somebody who I know she had dated. I bumped into this person up in another suburb. And this person had lost weight dramatically. Those days you could still tell if you knew what you were looking for. You could tell the the telltale signs. And I picked up this person who had been pretty much overweight had lost a tremendous amount of weight at that point. And the, the, just the jawline and the facial, could, I could pick up. And I still honestly believe that they are more infected than by him than we even know of. I'm, I'm gauging in the region of 20 people. And this is the knock-on effect of this. Because before someone is diagnosed, they may not even suspect they have HIV. And they could be passing it on to any partner they have, who in turn could be doing the same thing and pass it on to every partner they have. So really, 
from that single person's serial irresponsibility and blatant disregard for the safety of others, the number of infected could be beyond our comprehension. Today, Cindy works as an activist, speaker, counsellor and coach. Yes, I do training, I do speaking, I do counselling, coaching. I also am looking into offering all my services as a, as a holistic offering. Let's put it that way. Because I've done so many things to, to better my life. The mindset, the resilience, the activism, the speaking, the training, all that sort of the coaching. And I started intermittent fasting just over a year, just under a year ago which I think has done an incredible amount of good for my health over and above the fact that I lost 20 kilos, but it's done an immense amount of good for my mental and my physical health. I do all these offerings and the mindset thing, I sort of just sharing willy-nilly with everybody. And somebody said to me the other day, well, why don't you use that as part of your programs? You know, So yeah, that's something that I have to give some thought to. Cindy acknowledges that over the years, she had started to put weight on, and it was only after she started to shed that weight that she realized she'd been using it as a defense mechanism. Today, she feels like she's done a 180-degree turn in how she feels about herself, how she presents herself to the world, and how she thinks about who she is as a woman. To help her process her journey, and to provide another platform for education, Cindy also wrote a book about her experiences. When that newspaper article came out, they actually titled the article as The Deadly Seducer, being that the person, as well as the virus, is a deadly seducer. Then Carte Blanche took it on with that title as well when they did the interview. And I thought, well, hell, you know what? That's actually a jolly good name for my book. So I wrote about my journey in, I think it was 2013, I, my book came out. And yeah, it was very much a, an insight into how I kind of grew up. That I was a normal, average person that was unfortunately put in a position where I was diagnosed with HIV. And that is just to make people understand that, you know what, it can actually happen to anyone and that was one of the reasons behind it, just to show that, you know what, older white women can also get it and still live a normal life. Although Cindy has done amazing work to get herself healthy and maintain her undetectable viral load, her body has endured much more than most human beings ever will. And in 2018, she experienced yet another health crisis. And then, of course, in 2018... I also had a massive heart attack, uh, which resulted in a double bypass. The left side of my heart had 0% blood flow through it, and my, my right side had 0.01% blood flow through it. So, yeah, I've done some damage to my body, but I'm still here. And although she holds a unique space for those living with HIV, everything that she's been through has given her the ability to empathize and help counsel people dealing with many different chronic issues. There's so many people out there that are having trouble with, with chronic 
challenges, chronic health challenges. It's not, not just the cancer, not just the, the TB, it's not just the heart. It's, it's just chronic mental health can be a chronic challenge to them. How do you deal with it? How does somebody else deal with it? To me, the best way to learn is to learn from somebody else that has been through whatever process. To me, it's like it kind of has become, oh, yawn. But to other people, it's like, how the hang did you do that? You as the person become a little bit complacent until you start to realize, you know what? This is quite something. And you, you forget. I mean, it's been 17 years already. You kind of forget the the impact you can make on, on somebody else's life because they see it differently to how I, it's new to them. It's, it's old to me now, but it's still new to them. Yeah. Hopefully I can guide somebody through whatever process they're going through. Remember that moments I've spoken about in other episodes where the person given space to tell their story sits back and goes, wow. I actually survived this. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here it is again. I had that cancer. I had the TB meningitis. I mean, that's brain fleas on steering. Come on, let's be, be honest. That is drama. A heart attack, double bypass. How the hell did I actually survive all that? And why? When, when I speak to, to somebody like you now again, then it, it sort of like, comes up fresh again. That's why I love talking about it, actually, because it just puts me in a position to remind me of what I've been through can actually benefit other people. That's what it does. Um, It's a good reminder to me. I have learned so much about HIV and AIDS by talking to Cindy and doing research for this episode. I'm not ashamed to admit that I did not understand the importance of starting antiretrovirals as soon as you learn about your diagnosis. Antiretrovirals stop the replication process of the virus, so it keeps your viral count low. The sooner you can start introducing antiretrovirals or ARVs to your body, the better chance you have of not contracting any related infections, and you can actually do what Cindy's managed to achieve. Push her viral load all the way down to below 100, where it's undetectable. And here's another interesting thing I learned. If your viral load is in the undetectable range, you cannot pass the virus on to anyone else. In 2004, when South Africa started rolling out free ARVs in the public sector, this marked a shift in how the HIV virus would impact our country. Today, thanks to the reduced viral loads in so many HIV-positive people, mother-to-child transmission in South Africa is at the lowest level in the entire world. Cindy says it's virtually non-existent. That is just mind-blowing. South Africa was forced to develop a strong virology community in the wake of the AIDS and TB epidemics. And we've actually done a pretty darn good job at helping people living with HIV to live long and healthy lives. Go us. But there's one end on which we still need to work, and that's broad-spectrum education. Firstly, we don't want people having to go on ARVs at all. 
So both men and women need to put their safety before anything else and use protection in all sexual relationships, or at least care about each other enough that you both regularly get tested for your peace of mind. The other side of this is that, as Cindy would tell me, so many people still have misconceptions about HIV. Young people she counsels who've tested positive still think they won't be able to get married and have children. And that is entirely not true. If you'd like to contact Cindy for any of the services she offers, or even if you'd just like to pop her a mail to tell her she's an awesome person, I'll leave her contact details in the show notes. I asked Cindy how she feels now about what she's been through and how it's impacted her life. In a sense, I can almost say that it was a good thing. <laughs> I know it sounds weird. That's that's my, my dark side coming out. It was a good thing that happened because it's actually made me more aware of my health and life in general. And it's given me a different perspective on many things. You know, it, it's given me the experience of life, what has happened. So I'm not, I'm not angry with life at all. It, it just is what it is. And I did what I did. And I, I think in a, in a sense, it has been quite a, a journey for me and a good one. Cindy Pavasic was the victim of a targeted biological attack by an abusive, narcissistic person. That man, and many people like him, both male and female, still walk the earth today. People who, although they present with the facade of the caring and exciting lover, are harboring secrets and nefarious intentions. It's a scary thought whether you're single or in a relationship because you could meet one of those people or you could already be with one. Should we allow this to stop us from loving and finding pleasure in connections with others? No, I don't think it should. But I do think that before we seek out the love and connection of others, we need to be very sure that we are capable of loving ourselves first and foremost. That might sound selfish. I love myself the most. But it's not. Because really the only way to protect yourself from both the physical and emotional harm that may be caused by people like that man is to first love yourself and be 100% sure that every relationship you're in is one that adds to your life and doesn't detract from it. Just my two cents. Use it, don't use it. I'd like to thank Cindy for speaking with me for this episode. I've learned so much from her story, and I hope you have too. Throughout the next two weeks, I'll be sharing resources on social media related to HIV and the other important topics discussed in this episode. Try to catch me howling at the moon. I Lived Through This tells the true stories of ordinary people who've survived unimaginable situations. If you'd like to share your story of survival, you can head over to our Facebook page and fill in the form, or you can email livedthroughthis 
at gmail.com. I Lived Through This releases new stories every second week. In between, you can head over to our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and join in the conversation with our survivors. Thank you for listening.